Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Latin American History Podcast, Episode 5, The Aztecs, Part 2. Today we continue our look at the Aztecs, examining their expansion, as well as their culture, religion and art. Over the last few episodes we've traced the history of Mesoamerica, from the first hunter-gatherers right through the classical era. We looked at some of the great states from this era, such as Teotihuacan and Monte Alban, and then we discussed how these states came to an end. Now it's important to put the Aztecs into context, especially when examining their expansion. The Aztecs lived in the post-classical era. This began around the year 1000, and up until now had been marked by small successor states unable to live up to the glory of their illustrious ancestors. Of course, splitting history up into distinct periods is always difficult. In different parts of the region it could be argued that it started earlier or later, or maybe not at all. Its defining characteristic was the rise of newer, greater empires. These did not just differ from their predecessors in size, but also in their focus and warfare. Previously the priests had been the most important class across the civilizations. Now they were increasingly being pushed aside by warriors. Nobles were increasingly expected to perform military duties, rather than religious ones. These new states also expanded much more rapidly and further than their predecessors had. Some people argue that these new civilizations were the first real empires of Mesoamerica. This is because often they ruled over multi-ethnic populations and territories. While much impressive art was produced at this time, Many historians believe that the peak of Mesoamerican cultural expression had already passed. These changes were happening everywhere, but no one personified them as much as the Aztecs. When we left them last week, they had just gained their freedom, formed the Triple Alliance and started expanding. Now we will examine their rise from an alliance of three city-states to a great empire. Moctezuma I was the emperor who kick-started Aztec expansion. He conquered lands to the north, south and east of Tenochtitlan. This included the area which had once been ruled over by the Veracruz civilization. This gave him access to the sea. He was followed by Asher Yaktun, who conquered lands closer to home and helped make the empire more contiguous. Perhaps the most militarily successful emperor, however, was Awitzotl. He expanded the empire to the Pacific coast and even as far south as the Mayan lands of Chiapas and Guatemala. He was followed by the famous Moctezuma II, the one who was in charge when the Spanish arrived. Despite his reputation, he was actually a fairly successful military ruler. While the Aztec controlled Chiapas, it wasn't connected to the rest of their empire. 
He conquered the land in the middle and joined it up. This area included Oaxaca, and he was responsible for finally conquering the mighty Zapotec. All this happened with startling speed. Although they cannot be matched for size, in terms of time the Aztecs were just a drop in the ocean compared to the earlier great civilizations. These lasted for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. The Aztec, on the other hand, only had six emperors and lasted for less than a century. Of course, we cannot say what would have happened had the Spanish not arrived. Perhaps they would have lasted just as long. The fact is, however, that their empire was exceedingly short-lived. Despite their impressive expansion, there were some people who the Aztec never conquered. Our friends the Mixtec, for example, were never incorporated into their empire. Another group who remained independent were the Tlaxcalan. This is interesting because they lived extremely close to the Aztec heartland. In fact, they quickly found themselves completely encircled. It surely wouldn't have taken much for the Aztec to defeat them, so their continued independence is a little bit puzzling. A third group were the Tarascans, who lived to the northwest of the Aztecs in today's Michoacan. Unlike the others, we can say with certainty that there was a concerted effort by the Aztec to defeat them, but they were never able to. Thanks to the threat of the Aztec, they formed the only truly territorial state in Mesoamerica. As I mentioned last episode, the Aztec followed the traditional Mesoamerican method of state building. This was based around exerting influence and extracting tribute from neighbouring city-states. This resulted in a sort of spectrum with different cities coming under different levels of influence from their masters. It's sometimes difficult to tell if cities on the edge of an empire were truly part of it, or if they were merely paying tribute in order to avoid a proper conquest. This model often led to fuzzy borders, as well as non-contiguous empires. The Tarascans were different then, because they created fixed borders. There were no shades of influence, or exclave cities. Everything within these borders belonged concretely to the Tarascan. These borders were then fiercely guarded, and this is much closer to our own conception of what a state should be. It was successful as well, and despite repeated attempts, the Aztecs were never really able to make inroads into their territory. It was Ashayactal who made the most concerted effort to defeat them, and he marched deep into their lands. After some initial success conquering border towns, he marched onwards, and some believe that his overconfidence led to his defeat. They found themselves outnumbered and in unfamiliar territory, and as a result, they were soundly beaten. Up until this point, the Aztecs had seemed unstoppable, and this event must have shaken them psychologically. As the Aztec Empire grew, the city-states within it also grew thanks to the newfound wealth it was providing. One such city was Cholula which, originally being a rival of Tenochtitlan, was incorporated into the empire. Despite a sacking in 1200 by Chichimec tribes, by the time the Spanish arrived it was the second largest city in Mesoamerica. It became an important religious centre, and its priests crowned the Aztec emperors. Other cities who embraced the Aztecs would have seen similar growth and prosperity, as well as a range of new trade goods, bought in from far-flung parts of the empire. Alongside traditional battles and conquests, the Aztecs practiced a very strange form of ritual warfare known as the Flower Wars. These battles had a strict code of conduct, and each one was prearranged. Once each side had met at the set time and place, 
a fire was lit between them, and this signalled that hostilities could commence. Casualty numbers were usually relatively low, however death in these battles was seen as nice glorious way to die. Their purpose, it seems, was not to defeat your enemy or win new territory. So why did they do it then? Why did they risk their lives in this strange sport for no obvious gain? The truth is, we don't really know. It's been speculated that perhaps it was a chance for warriors to train and gain real-life experience. It could also be that this was a way for both sides to gain captives, which could then be used for sacrifice. These are the reasons that the last emperor, Moctezuma II, gave to the Spanish when they asked him why he hadn't conquered the nearby Tlaxcala. He seems to have suggested that he was keeping them around so that they could do their flower wars. It makes sense that this phenomenon had a spiritual purpose. Aztec society was very religious. Like other Mesoamerican religions, the Aztec faith was polytheistic. There were many gods and goddesses, and each represented an aspect of life. These could include natural features, like wind, rain and the moon. But they also included abstract concepts, like guilt, pleasure and fertility. Many of these gods had their roots in other civilizations, either contemporary to the Aztecs or previous ones. Perhaps the most famous deity is Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent. He was worshipped by the people of Teotihuacan many centuries before, although some people argue that certain Olmec carvings may represent him. The Maya also had their own version of the god who they venerated. Quetzalcoatl was the god of wind, as well as of learning. It's said that after being tricked into sleeping with a celibate priestess, regret overcame him and he burns himself. He is still burning today, in the form of the planet Venus. Quetzalcoatl was very important to the Aztec, and the two highest priests used his name as part of their title. The most important god, however, was Huitzilopochtli, the brother of Quetzalcoatl and patron deity of Tenochtitlan. It was Huitzilopochtli who gave the Aztecs the vision of the eagle perched on the cactus eating the snake. He was the god of war, and it was to him that they dedicated their human sacrifices. In the physical world, he took the form of the sun, and he was engaged in a constant battle against the darkness and his brother and sister gods who took the form of the stars. Every day this battle was played out, as the sun rose and chased away the stars. The aim of the human sacrifices was to give him the strength needed to win the battle. If he was ever to lose, all would be darkness, and the Aztec civilization would fail. The Aztecs believed that at the moment of sacrifice, the victim was not just a person. He was Huitzilopochtli incarnate. This is because, according to their mythology, Huitzilopochtli sacrificed himself in order to win the battle. Sacrifices would be performed to other gods as well, and they didn't always involve humans. Animals could be used, or even offerings of food. When humans were sacrificed, it was usually when there was a big or important request being made. Often the victims were slaves or prisoners of war, but it could be anyone, even the nobles were sometimes sacrificed. Occasionally it might be the priests, and they would perform a ritual suicide. Often the priests would simply cut themselves, however, to provide blood for their chosen deity. Historians believe this was by far the most common type of sacrifice. Where humans were used, priests would plunge a knife into the chest of the victim 
rip out the heart and hold it still beating aloft. Grisly scenes such as this have made their way into public consciousness and are responsible for our perception of the Aztecs as barbarous. There is also some evidence that alongside ritual killing, cannibalism may have taken place. Among social scientists, the reasons for strange rituals and beliefs are often debated. The most simple explanation is to take it at face value. This would be to say that the Aztecs genuinely believed that without the sacrifices, Quetzalcoatl would lose his battle and the sun would fail to rise. Often, though, scholars attempt to find a function behind the belief. These functions and the beliefs are not mutually exclusive. The Aztecs would have genuinely believed in the myths, even if the ritual performed some kind of non-religious purpose. There is a school of thought which suggests that human sacrifice was a way to control population numbers. As the settled and organised society of the Aztecs developed, this laid the groundwork for a huge growth in population, and at times this may have caused problems. If there were more people than the land could support, this could lead to food shortages. By killing some people off via human sacrifice, this could be a way of easing the pressure on the food supply. The more people there were, the greater the food shortage, and the higher the level of associated problems, such as social unrest. Conveniently, the greater the problems, the more displeased the gods could be interpreted as being. This would then require greater numbers of human sacrifices. Of course, this means more people being culled from the population, which in turn eases the food shortage. If this hypothesis is correct, it's important to remember that the priests would not have been doing this consciously. They would have believed that the gods were displeased and needed more sacrifice. It wouldn't have been some big conscious conspiracy. While the land that the Aztecs lived in was capable of producing a large amount of food, it wasn't extraordinarily fertile, and it's conceivable that food problems could have occurred. On the face of it, this theory does make some sort of sense. On the other hand, the Aztec population was huge. Tenochtitlan alone was estimated to be one of the biggest cities in the world, and only a few European cities such as Paris or Constantinople could rival it. In order to reduce the population in any tangible way, a truly enormous number of sacrifices must have been taking place. For this reason, I am personally sceptical that this was what was going on. Although accounts by Spanish conquistadors tell us that large numbers of people were being sacrificed, we're yet to find archaeological evidence that it took place on this level. It seems likely that these claims were exaggerated in order to justify the conquest of Mexico. There is one more element of Aztec religion which I want to talk about, the Teotl. This is a concept for which we have no direct equivalent. Teotl can be translated as God, however this is too simplistic. They were without doubt supernatural beings, but historians don't think that they were deities. They should perhaps be interpreted more as supernatural powers. They could take human form, but weren't necessarily tied to it. If this sounds confusing, it's because it is, and we don't really know exactly how the Aztecs saw the Teotl. For now, just remember that they exist. They will take on great importance down the track. Much of our knowledge of the Aztecs comes from a series of resources they left behind, known as the Codices. These are the best resources we have for the era, if only previous civilizations had left behind such detailed records. Interestingly, they were produced not just at the height of the empire, 
but during the colonial period as well. The pre-Columbian codices take the form of pictures representing important scenes, but the colonial ones were written, sometimes in Spanish, sometimes in Nahuatl with Latin characters, and sometimes in Latin itself. This is where we get most of our knowledge of the Toltecs, as well as the myth about the foundation of Tenochtitlan. While the Spanish also left behind accounts of the Aztec, the codices are important because they allow the Mexica to tell us about themselves in their own words. Apart from anything else, they are beautiful works of art. They also allow us to piece together the chronology of Aztec expansion and work out exactly which bits of Mesoamerica were part of their empire. So what did this empire look like? How was their society structured? The supreme leader was the emperor. He derived his personal legitimacy through war, and it was expected that he would lead the Aztec to the successful conquest of neighbouring peoples. Failure to do so could be seen as a sign of weakness, and we know of one emperor, Tisok, who was probably assassinated because of his lack of military success. The emperor came from a royal family, and the title was passed down through the dynasty. This would lead to family feuds and scheming, as rival claimants would fight each other in order to gain the title. Each of the cities that were conquered by the Aztec would retain its own king, or Tlatoani. They would have been allowed a fairly high level of control over their own cities, as long as they kept the tribute flowing. The Tlatoani then formed an elite warrior king class near the top of Aztec society. Aztec peasants, known as the Masihualtin, were required to pay tribute to the local pipiltin, or noble, in the form of labour or food. This system is not too dissimilar to the bottom rungs of European feudal society. As well as owning land, the Papiltin were exempt from paying tribute to their local king. They were encouraged to educate themselves so they could become philosophers, administrators and judges. The Aztec did not have the wheel or horses. This meant that instead of working in the field, some Aztec commoners found employment as goods carriers. They would move things across the empire on their backs. As the empire was so large, and there was no other way of getting things from place to place, I imagine the number of these porters would have been massive. It would also have been difficult work. Carrying things hundreds of miles on your back can't have been fun. Some commoners managed to work their way up and join the Pochteca, the merchant class. While starting off with humble origins, this class actually gained a fair amount of social status by the end of the Aztec era. They would still have been few in number, however, and it would be very difficult for a peasant to join them. At the very bottom of the pyramid were the Tlatlacoltin, the slaves. Unlike slavery in many other societies, this position was temporary. It often came about through debt or as punishment for a crime. They retained their possessions, and they were not property of their owners. They were simply required to work until their debt had been paid off. Those who were unable to do so, however, could find themselves becoming full slaves and were prime candidates for sacrifice. In 1450, a famine struck the capital, which lasted for four years. The peripheral areas of the empire were unaffected, and many ethnic Aztecs from around Tenochtitlan were forced to sell themselves into slavery. They worked on farms in other cities until the famine had subsided. I imagine this would have grated. As a true Aztec, it must have been demeaning 
to lose your position and work for these relative newcomers to the empire. The Aztec had a strong set of laws, and these were codified by Moctezuma I. The state would punish crimes such as murder or theft, but they also considered things like homosexuality, nudity and drunkenness to be illegal. There was a court system which allowed the accused a trial. How fair these were is unknown, but we do know that appeals were possible, suggesting some level of due process. There were also different levels of court, just like we have today, and these would deal with different severities of crimes. There were, however, no lawyers. Each person had to make their case themselves. There were no prisons either, and the punishment for most crimes was either death or sacrifice. In some cases, the court may decide to demolish your house or force you to pay a sum of money. A period of slavery to the person you'd wronged was, of course, always an option. Theft was considered even more reprehensible to the Aztec than it is in our society, and even the smallest example would usually mean the death penalty. Another crime was being out after curfew. Every Aztec was required to be at home at night. At 6pm, a drum would sound to signal that the working day had finished and that they must make their way home. Thanks to the images of human sacrifice, we often think of the Aztecs as quite a grisly, barbarous people. In many ways, it seems, though, that they were quite moralistic, and their developed legal system suggests that perhaps they were more cultivated than we give them credit for. With their disapproval of nudity, homosexuality and drunkenness, they don't sound too different to the Spanish at the time. Let's not forget that the Iberians, while not sacrificing people, were busy burning witches and persecuting Jews and Muslims at the time. I am no expert on historic European legal systems, but I might even go as far as to say that I would prefer to be an Aztec accused of a crime than a Spaniard. It appears you might have more chance of proving your innocence. Before finishing, let's have a look at the capital of Tenochtitlan itself. Like other contemporary Mesoamerican cities, it was designed to be a defensive maze. Without prior knowledge of the city's layout, it would have been easy for attackers to have got lost in the small side streets and be drawn into dead ends where they could be attacked. Homes were simple affairs, and would have consisted of a one-room square hut made of a mixture of stone and wassail and daub. The houses were simple, as people would have spent little time there. They were used for cooking, eating and sleeping, but all other activities, including socialising and relaxing, would have taken place outdoors. It's also thought that all commoners' houses would have been laid out in exactly the same way, with exactly the same pieces of furniture in the same spots. This may have been for religious reasons, as it was designed to represent the Aztec understanding of the cosmos. Houses did not have toilets. Instead, the Aztecs used the many public facilities dotted around the city. Often these were located on bridges, and canoes would be placed underneath to catch the human waste for use as manure on the fields. Of course, the public buildings and the houses of the nobles would have been much grander. The Aztec are famous for building their large, stepped pyramids. Today, the ruins of these are plain, but at the time they would have been painted bright colours. This would have given the cities a completely different aesthetic to how they appear today. Often as time passed, pyramids would be expanded to make them bigger. Instead of knocking them down, the new pyramid would be built around the old one. 
Sometimes when you excavate them, you can find several layers. They're sort of like those Russian dolls. The scale of them was enormous, with Cortes himself quoted as saying that many were bigger than anything that existed back in Spain. As the whole of Latin America was conquered with relative ease, it's easy to think that this was a case of two mismatched civilizations meeting and that the Spanish were much more developed than the Aztec. By some measurements, at least, this was not the case. Tenochtitlan was bigger and grander than any of the Spanish cities. In his writings, Cortes expresses astonishment at what he found. I don't think that, at least initially, the conquistadors would have thought that they discovered an inferior society that was ripe for conquest. Alongside the pyramids, there were several other public buildings, including schools, markets, and even zoos. There were public squares, gardens, and parks. Some of these would have been floating on the canals which flowed through the city. Tenochtitlan was crossed by three main streets. These went from the edges to the centre of the city, and the Spanish described them as being wide enough for ten horses. Close to the pyramids were the houses of the nobility. Only they were allowed to live in buildings of two or more floors. Their compounds were built around a central courtyard and would have had gardens attached. They would have been decorated with paintings and carvings, and they would have had stone roofs, unlike the houses of the commoners whose roofs were made of straw. That brings our discussion of the Aztec to an end. Thank you for your patience in waiting for this episode to come out. If you weren't already aware, I had recorded this and planned to release it after the first Aztec episode, but the file got completely corrupted. Thanks for listening to the Latin American History Podcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.